have your Bible with you this morning, and join me in 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. First Peter chapter 1, begin reading at verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of our great God. Father, in these moments, now help as only you can. We have declared our dependence on you from the beginning of this service to this place. And now we depend on the work of your spirit that we'd rightly see and hear and apply this your word. Oh, Father, work in us as you have promised. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. For many of us, among a lot of things we learned from the contemporary theologian R.C. Sproul was a bit of his gift for frank, blunt declarations. One of the more famous, or I guess some might even say infamous, was during a Q&A a few years ago when a question was broached to the panel. The essence of the question, and I'm paraphrasing, if if or since the Lord is patient and long-suffering, why did he respond so severely and with such a long-lasting consequence to that one sin in the garden? And before anybody could answer, R.C., asserting both his forceful personality and his age, wait a minute. This creature from the dirt has defied the eternal, holy God who said in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But instead of dying, the man was allowed to live another day. In fact, he was clothed in his guilty nakedness by the grace of God. The one who seduced him given a harsher punishment. His head would be crushed. And finally, God in his grace then rescues man. And then the infamous question, you know it, many of you, what's wrong with you people? We neither in our time know ourselves nor our God. And the consequence of that, we reap over and over and over again. I hear echoing in my head the words 
of the Old Testament, you thought I was altogether one like you. We speak of fearing God, and the concept sounds weird to our ears. It, it, it almost has a dissonance to it, the fear of God. Jerry Bridges wrote a book several years ago entitled The Joy of Fearing God. And he knew how that would sound to people. In fact, he says in the opening, the joy of fearing God, it sounds like a contradiction in terms. One of the first times I used the expression, my listener, a Christian leader, gave a puzzled look and responded, that's an interesting combination of words. I suspect he was being polite, as he really thought, how can anyone enjoy fear? And more to the point, how can you enjoy fearing God? Christianity means a relationship with God, but how can you have a relationship with someone you fear? The fact that a Christian leader would respond to the concept with a puzzled look tells us something about the current state of Christianity. There was a time when committed Christians were known as God-fearing people. This was a badge of honor. But somewhere along the way, we lost it. Now, the idea of fearing God, if thought of at all, seems like a relic from the past. That is to our detriment. The fear of God is actually as relevant today as it was in bygone generations. Another place, Bridges writes, the fear of God is better described than defined. And yet we're told in Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Whenever the Apostle Paul does the old rabbinical teaching trick, a method called stringing pearls, writing lots of texts together to prove a point in Romans 3, what does he say among the, the qualities, the designators of those who are outside of Christ. There is no fear of God before their eyes. John Murray put it this way, it is the essence of impiety. Not to be afraid of God when there's reason to be afraid. The Scriptures throughout prescribe the necessity of this fear of God under all circumstances in which our sinful situation makes us liable to God's righteous judgment. Hear me, my friends. If there is not within you a certain trembling at the thought of answering to the thrice holy God for your living your speaking, your thinking, your very life, somewhere you have missed something vital. In fact, it may well be evidence that you're not even converted. You see, we think there's a contradiction between loving God and fearing God. We set those two things up in opposition to one another where the Scripture never separates them. Let us never separate to take language from the wedding ceremony. Let no man put asunder what God 
has put together. Godly fear motivates godly living. As Peter writes this to these exiles, remember that's how he describes them in the first verse of the first chapter, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and then tells us where they are. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, names and places and regions that have very little meaning to us today. We know it was what we today would consider modern Turkey, Asia Minor. But in this, he is exhorting them to faithful living in the face of difficulties of persecution and a persecution that is ultimately in that era going to get worse. You see, we are to fear God, to reverence God, to respect God, because first of the Father's judgment, look at verse 17. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now what does He affirm here as He speaks of the Father's judgment? Well, first... He affirms He is your Father. If you call on Him as Father, He's not taking back the fatherhood of God. He's not making you recoil or withdraw from the idea of your new birth, of your adoption, of your brand new identity of being Christian, God's child. God is your Father. Christian, never for a moment think that fearing God means that God is not your Father. This is a difficult thing, I think, in our time because for many of us, the concept of Father does not inspire in us what it did in previous generations. And we have, unfortunately, in our culture, good cause for that lamentable situation. We haven't time to go through all the reasons that it is so in America. But let's just be plain spoken in summary to say. Fathers are treated with contempt. There are too many circumstances because fathers have behaved contemptibly in far too many circumstances. It is a failure of manhood. It is the triumph of immature boyhood in the realm that should be for mature men who take responsibility for life and leadership. Now, if that makes you wonder whether some of you young men ought to be a father. Good. My dear younger brother, if you're not ready to be a father, I will tell you you're not ready to be a husband either. You're actually not ready to be much of a man yet. Even if God should leave you single for the balance of your life, 
The concept of leadership, of being a man, of being a father, is an extraordinary burden laid upon us and one that we should embrace. Now, I'll give you the other side of that. We ridicule in our age fathers. They are the objects of scorn, the butt of jokes, over and over again. But my friend, when you speak of God as Father, keep in mind that in this era, in this time of society, the Father ranked higher and was more numinous, a word used by Selwyn, numinous means holy or sacred or set apart, a figure, than the judge. For it was the Father's function par excellence to command and teach which was held to be a more august function than the judges giving of rewards and punishments. All the Father shouldn't drive us away from Him, but rather to Him. But He is your Father, yet He judges impartially. My friend, if you call Christ yours, and you ever begin thinking, oh, you know, I can do this and get away with it, God will forgive me. After all, God's my Father. Therefore, I'm safe. Do you understand you're treading on very dangerous ground? That is not a spiritually healthy way to think. Oh, we reference this fairly often as an illustration, and I do think it to be to the point. In that wonderful children's series, Chronicles of Narnia and Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when the children are visiting with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and the subject of the lion, Aslan, comes up. And Lucy says, is, is, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. I suspect that's a healthy thing, by the by. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Lucy said, then he isn't safe? And Mr. Beaver, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The new Israel, the Gentile Christians living in exile have not been banished from the house of God, but they live in reverential fear of the Father. My friends, hear what I'm saying to you. Your Father does not cease to be the thrice holy God when you enter into the covenant of forgiveness and salvation with Him. He is still mightily God. And you live before him, even in this exile. This father's judgment, it is our father. He judges impartially. But ultimately, whatever the world thinks of us, conduct yourselves with fear throughout, throughout the time of your exile. Peter will not abandon the idea that we live exiled lives. We live in a world that does not receive us. We live in a world that misunderstands and hates us. But that is not what should make us fearful. What should motivate us, what should make us awestruck, 
What should drive us is that there is a God who is truly the thrice holy God who is our Father. And whatever anybody thinks of me, what he thinks of me is more important than any of you. How can I mistreat such a father? So this reverential fear is because of the father's judgment, but it's also because of the cost or the price of our ransom, our redemption. Verses 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter's encouraging us to holy living by pointing us to Christ's coming, chapter 1, verse 3. The holiness of God is a pattern, chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. And the judgment of our Father filling us with a faithful fear that calls on His name. Now He comes to the heart of the matter. How can we as sinners be drawn to the holiness of God because we have been ransomed? Same word, redemption. Redemption was a slave price. That's how it's used in other contexts. If a slave was to gain their freedom, they could actually work and make money on their own and eventually buy their freedom, or somebody else could post the price and buy their freedom. But whenever this word is used, you were ransomed, it was in a culture that understood what it was like to live as a slave and live as a freeman. And slaves in this day was not a racial slavery. Slavery was status based on socioeconomics and military conquest. It wasn't about the color of your skin or where you lived. It was simply that you were a conquered people, ended up a slave, or you'd gotten into debt and couldn't pay off the debt, and you ended up in slavery. They understood what it meant to redeem themselves out of slavery. But that redemption, that of Christ's blood. Imagine the imagery here. He uses two. First is it is more precious than silver or gold used to buy one's freedom as a slave, but then he compares it to the blood of the sacrificial lamb. He is our redemption. John Calvin put it this way, we know how dreadfully sacrilegious it is to hold the blood of the Son of God cheaply. There is nothing which ought to stimulate us to the practice of holiness more keenly than the memory of this price of our redemption. This great redemption produces typically in a Christian two profound emotions. Love. Love sees the price God paid to redeem us. Fear of despising that love. I've said it before, folks. They used to, my father, my father could look like an extraordinarily stern man. And he could be. Now, if you ever got him to smile, he just, his whole face just lit up. But, but Don looked like he was mad most of the time. 
Friends would come over. What's your dad mad about? Nothing. What are you talking about? He looks mad. That's just how he looks. But you see, the heartbreaking thing is a son. There was, there was fear. I'm not going to lie to you, children. Like I shared with you one time, I said, well, Dad, what happens if I get in trouble and I just run off? I'm faster than you are. One of those rare moments that Dad smiled in a way that made me have a chill run down my spine. The thought of disappointing him had far more weight about it than any fear of punishment, especially as I grew older. I think Peter may have had in mind, as he's writing this, the 34th Psalm. Now, if you don't want to turn there, listen, this is the Psalm that David writes. Whenever he, he's in front of Abimelech, you remember he's, uh, that was the Philistine king, and David's hiding in his city because he's so afraid of Saul, and it's Gath. And I know that you all that, you all that know a biblical geography understand this, right? All the stupid places to hide. Why is that stupid? Where was Goliath from? Gath. Who killed Goliath? David. Where's he hiding out? Gath. Mm. It either speaks to his desperation, or maybe he just had a moment he didn't think about it. But remember, he pretends to be off in the head. Now, after he's escaped, here's what he says. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. Now, ponder this. David had cause to be in fear of Abimelech. You got no being king in the city where your champion has been killed and you've got the killer in hand. You talk about making political capital. Take David and enslave him or execute him. Your future is secure. But David acts like a madman, and you remember Abimelech's response, don't I have enough madmen around me? Get him out of here. My world is filled with crazy people. I don't need another. That seems like a place for fear, does it not? And yet, what does he say? He feared the Lord. Verse 9, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Verse 11, come, old children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Over and over again, what David declares here is that in the midst of a fearful situation, his greater fear was of despising this God who had delivered him. 
Christian, hear this. Fearing the Lord is not just fearing the Father's judgment. It is fearing that you treat with contempt the price of your redemption. Third, we also should have a reverential fear and awe of God, verse 20, because of Christ's appointment. This thing is bigger than just us. What does that 20th verse tell us? He, speaking of Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. As in the salutation, verses 1 and 2, Peter links the blood of Christ's sacrifice with the saving purpose of God. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. See, before there was a disease, God had the cure. Christ was foreknown, foreloved before the foundation of the world. There's always been a plan. And this thing is immense. This is, is so powerfully motivational, folks. This isn't just about you and your individual salvation, although it is that. Never make it less than that, but know that it is far more than that. You and I are part of an eternal, glorious purpose and plan of God. And that plan includes our redemption through the foreknown Christ. The foreknowledge of Christ's redeeming death corresponds to God's electing foreknowledge of those who would be redeemed by it. God knew the complete program of redemption before the foundation of the world. His redemption breaks not only the chain that binds us to a future doom, it breaks the chain of a dead past. My friends, He was foreknown. He was revealed in the last times and made manifest for your sake. I think sometimes folks get bored with the Christian thing. And I think they get bored because they never see how big it is. They never actually take into account the largeness of what this is. See, some of you, brothers and sisters, would do well. You'd do well to maybe take some of your capital and arrange to go to another part of the world and meet some other believers, some brothers and sisters in Christ, who don't speak your language and yet know the same Savior you know. It would do your soul good to be a lot less self-centered. You know, we struggle with that, don't we? we we're in a culture that drowns us in the sovereignty of self. It absolutely immerses us into, well, I, 
I've got to do what's best for me. Wow. Congratulations on your selfishness. Now, I'm not saying that's true in all contexts, my brothers and sisters. There are places where that is a proper way to think. But my friend, if all your life, all you ever think about is the outcome for you and how well it works out for you and how good your life will be and how wonderful things are for you, then I wonder if Jesus has done anything in you. Christian, you are part of something far larger than you. And the Lord would use you to extend His kingdom. Do you live for the sake of king and kingdom? Do you have this fear, this reverence, this respect for the God who judges, for the redemption that is yours, for the appointment of Christ and His plan, and finally, for Christ's mediation? Verse 21, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Through Him, who's the Him? Christ, who was foreknown. Through Him are believers in God. There's no faith without Christ. Gave Him glory so your faith and hope are in Him. There's no rest without Christ. There's no way to God without Christ. I love the way Calvin speaks of this. As faith ought to unite us to God, we shun and dread every, every access to Him unless a mediator comes who can deliver us from fear for sin which reigns in us renders us hateful to God and him in turn to us. Hence, as soon as mention is made of God, we must necessarily be filled with dread. And if we approach him, his justice is like fire, which will utterly consume us, except for this. Through him we are believers who raised him from the dead, gave him glory, so your faith and hope are in God. You rest in Christ's mediation. Oh Lord, help us set our hopes not on what we can do, but on what Christ has already done. Reverential fear. Respect. That's why it makes me nervous when I hear ostensible ministers of the gospel speak slightingly of God. Cavalierly of the Holy One. It's why a brother like R.C. will start screaming, what's wrong? with you people. How can we treat lightly the reality that our Father is an impartial judge, that the cost of our redemption is immense, that this plan of God has been going on since eternity and we are made part of it, and it is so because of Christ's mediation for us. Yes, I call on you. Fear the Lord, and live your lives fearing Him in this exile. If you live fearing Him in this exile, you won't fear the other things in the exile so much. Listen to our brother Spurgeon. 
This is from a sermon of his titled, Godly Fear and Its Goodly Consequences. I love that title. Godly Fear and Its Goodly Consequences. You can find it online if you'd like to read it. Here's what he says. Let us have this holy fear very strong upon us, and we shall avoid anything which might grieve the Spirit of God. A true child of the kind I've tried to describe, and I hope there are some about, is always afraid of doing anything which might cast a suspicion upon his love and his respect to his father. If he feels that he's done something which might appear discourteous or be interpreted as akin to rebellion, he's eager to explain at once that he did not mean it so. Or if he's made a mistake, he's eager at once to rectify it and would say, Father, do not read my conduct severely. I love you with all my heart. I may have erred. I have erred. I beg to express my deep regret and repentance. He could not bear it that his father should think, my child has no esteem for me, no respect for me, no love for me. It ought to go hard with every Christian when he thinks he has given God cause to doubt his love. Did you hear that? That ought to bother you. I suspect he has when he finds cause to suspect in himself. When you say to your soul, do I love the Lord or not? Just think whether the Father God may not be saying it. Whether Jesus Christ, the ever-blessed, may not feel cause next time he meets you to say to you, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Three times he may put you that question because you've given him a triple cause for mistrusting you as to whether indeed your heart is right before him. We know the Lord knows all things and he knows that we love him. We fall back on that, but still we should not so act that the action should look as if we did not. We do not want to think or speak or do that anything about us should give just cause for suspicion to the all-wise one as to the reality of our profession of love. Now, if I have made you uncomfortable, I thank the Lord. Because that is my intent. I'm not seeking Please understand, I'm not seeking to destroy your assurance. I'm seeking to move you into the path of it. But oh, my friend, please, fear and reverence your Father. He is your Father, and He is the Father that holds your very life in His hands. Not a one of us here today knows that we shall live to see another day. We can't even say that we will live to see the end of this one. Our lives are in His hands. He is the God who is our Father. He is the God who has redeemed us by the blood of His Son. 
He is the God who has purposed our salvation through Christ. And He is the God who secures us through Him. But let us never pretend for a moment that mediation, that act of Christ, doesn't have power. If it has not changed you, if it has not changed you to desire, your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations, if it has not affected your priorities, if you sin with impunity and think nothing of it, then my friend, you may not know Him. The joy of fearing God. Faithfully fearing God. Come with reverential awe to such a one as this. May he truly be your salvation.